Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. I'm Lee. And I'm Gretchen. And we're back. And in this episode, we are talking about the man behind the march on Washington in 1963, one of the most, pardon the pun, core members of the civil rights movement in the (laughs) 60s, and generally uh, one of the most wonderful pacifist activists ever, Bayard Rustin. Yes. Because he's Bay. Yes. Bayard is Bay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't resist the pun. We could never resist a pun. No. We we really enjoy any opportunity we have. <laughs> Can I be pun sexual? Is that a thing? That's my identity. If we put it on a shirt, it's real. So, I'm, I'm, yes. I'm pun sexual. Cause, cool. Because I, I cannot resist the puns of any kind. We'll make that along with our... Our Gavin Claw shirt that somebody yes. came into our come came onto our website and was just like, please make a Gavin Claw shirt, <laughs> begging, begging, begging. It's like we will, we will, friend, we will. One of one of my good speaking of Gavin Claws, one of my good friends just recently retook the Pottermore quiz, and mm. she had always been like Hufflepuff primary with Ravenclaw secondary, and she recently just retook it and came out Ravenclaw primary, and I was like. It's because you're bi, honey. Like <laughs> the gay, the Gavin Claw catches. Like the, yeah, like you're hanging around me, so you're gonna become a Gavin Claw eventually. <laughs> so I love it. But but uh, there are many lovely gays in other houses. I'm just saying. I thought it was funny. Yes. Um. But yeah, Bayard Rustin is a figure that not a lot of people have heard about in terms of his importance to the civil rights movement, because mm-hmm. he was a gay man. Big surprise, people get pushed to the edges of history when they are queer. <laughs> That's my new song. Um, it's great. Yep. Follow me on social medias for more. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's accurate. Yeah. yeah, like, when I first heard about him and then learned that he was gay, I was like, oh, no wonder I have not heard about Bayard Rustin. Especially when you realize just how much he did and how much he was involved in you're like, oh, right. If he were a straight man, I doubt we would not know who he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, both from history books erasing him and also from at the time that he was doing these things, he was quite physically relegated to the sidelines in that there was a lot of concern over him being in the public eye and what it right. would do to the momentum that the cause was gaining. But mm-hmm. we'll get into all of that so yeah, do we, I don't know, do we have any um, content warnings for this episode? Uh, other than just general racism and bits of homophobia, I think the one thing is that since we are dealing especially with primary sources during the civil rights era, there there is a word that comes up a couple of times, and neither one of us is going to say that word because we don't think it's appropriate. We're both two white people. It's not our place to say this word. We're pretty sure you can guess what it is, especially in context, but we just wanted to make our listeners aware that, that mm-hmm. that's how we're going to handle it. Yep. So yeah, just general like homophobia in the time period and just general discussion of how shitty white people are. Yep. Because we're, sh- we're shitty. Yeah, we are. Um, yeah. Uh, this is going to be a people-focused episode, so we'll go through a 
Usually we say a brief bio, but there's no way to do that because this man did so much. So we will do a bio and then we'll go into our why do we think they're gay, which will mostly just be an elaboration on some of the more queer elements of Bayard's life. And then we will, as usual, end the podcast with how gay were they, our personal ranking about how likely it is that they weren't straight. And uh, in terms of new business and announcements, we're going to TGIFM slash. Woohoo! Yeah, yeah. So come say hi to us if you're going to that. Yes, absolutely. We are going to have a booth during the Artist Alley time period. We're going to have some merch samples. We're going to be doing a live podcast. It's going to be fun. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. We're going to have a good time. Yeah. And then we're going to spend the rest of the weekend talking about queer ladies in media and how much we love them. (laughs) We're also doing a live podcast. Yes, (laughs) we are also doing a live podcast with a special guest. We're going to have a special guest. One of our friends from TJFM Slash is going to be on our next podcast. Which is yes. exciting. We are very, very excited. Do you have anything else, Gretchen, before we dive in to our main topic? I don't believe so. I think that's it. Cool. All right. So then I guess we will dive in talking about our bay and yours, Bayard Rustin. Yes. So a little bit of historical context for the time period. We're not going to get super detailed just because... It's a little bit more recent. We have plans to really cover this era in detail later, but we wanted to give a little bit of context. So in a couple of the areas, the first thing we want to talk about is the atmosphere at the time in the United States towards blackness and the existence of the Jim Crow laws. Although slavery had been abolished in 1865 officially with the 13th Amendment, the United States, surprise, surprise, was still hostile and dangerous and discriminatory towards blacks. Uh, There was unrest throughout the South over losing the Civil War, and so the period after the Civil War is called the Reconstruction. And when that was over and federal troops uh, were withdrawn from the Confederacy, the Southern states were like, well, screw this, and they enacted a lovely series of laws that they called the Jim Crow laws, because that is a racist term for black people, and the intention was to, like, return, quote-unquote, order to the Mm. land, and it basically created a condition of virtual slavery. Black people were forced to work in agriculture, and nearly every institution of public life was strictly segregated. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in 1899, the U.S. Supreme Court actually gave the official stamp of approval to segregation with the ruling of the case Plessy versus Ferguson, which resulted in the Separate Car Act. So any of you who have ever heard the separate but equal clause, this is where it comes from. So So in the 1890s, a black man named Homer Plessy had sued the city of New Orleans, Louisiana over segregation on its streetcars. And the case went up and up and up into the into the court system up until it got to the U.S. Supreme Court, where they ruled that segregated accommodations were constitutional as long as they were, quote, separate but equal. Fun. Yeah, so separate facilities for anything and everything. Slavery had been abolished, but like literally all that meant is that you could no longer own a human being. Yep. Yeah. And everything else, it was basically the same. And and we're still dealing with the aftermath of that. We're still dealing with that to this day. There are there are many, many aspects of American society today still have not fully transitioned away from laws that were enacted over 100 years ago. Hmm. Yeah. Never mind the fact that the 13th Amendment also doesn't completely abolish slavery because it still allows it in the prison system. Hmm. And who overwhelmingly are in the prison system? Hmm. 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 Gosh. 
Gosh, the United States is great. Uh, Super awesome. Um, speaking of other colonialist powers that are not great. Fuck, 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 colonialism. British colonialism in India. Yeah. So Bayard Rustin was heavily influenced by the nonviolent civil disobedience that was being employed by Mohandas K. Gandhi during the Indian independence movement in the early 1900s. Many of you would know him better by Mahatma, which means the great soul. That's what how Gandhi was known by his followers. So Gandhi utilized nonviolent protest to work towards securing independence from Britain, who, of course, had been occupying India since the 1700s. And beginning in 1915, under Gandhi's leadership, Indians began following a nonviolent philosophy of protesting against British law, but refusing to fight back as they were beaten or jailed. And the prisons were frequently overcrowded, overflowing with people, because um, they would mm -hmm. allow themselves to be arrested, but they wouldn't, you know, fight. And that would just attract more people to the cause. Mm -hmm. So so through many acts of civil disobedience, such as public arrest, hunger strikes, and more, this eventually led Britain to surrender to India, uh, surrender India to itself in 1947. But as we'll see, Bayard Rustin was very, very heavily influenced by Gandhi's philosophy and the way that he enacted protests. And then that was how King eventually came to be known for having nonviolent protests as well. Yeah. Do you want to tell us about uh, the final point that we need to be aware of? Yeah. So the, the last bit of context that we have here is just briefly talking about the way that the United States was treating homosexuality at this time. So we've got a long span of time here, 1930s to 1960s. 1930s is when Bayard Rustin was coming into adulthood, and then the 1960s was when he was most influential in the civil rights movement. And during this entire time, homosexuality was criminalized in the United States. So every single state had anti-sodomy laws that criminalized same-sex behavior. Homosexuality was also listed in the DSM, which is the Manual for Psychological Disorders, and it was classified as a form of mental illness. And it actually wouldn't be removed until, I think, probably sometime in the late 60s? I can't remember. That sounds right, though. And, Ugh. yeah, and, like, gender dysphoria was only only uh, removed from the DSM in, like, the last five, ten years, yep. I think. Mm -hmm. Yay! Um, so, yeah. And then also, in the 1950s, gays and lesbians were prohibited from employment in the federal government, which was a period of time called the Lavender Scare, which is something that we'll be doing an entire episode on in the future. So, we're, you know, we're going to be super brief, but it was basically a period of time in which queer people were subject to essentially a witch hunt, expelling them from governmental jobs, saying that they were a security Ugh. risk. So it was a whole big thing. It was at this time that the Mattachine Society was going on. Um, there was a lot of work around it. We will do an entire episode on the Lavender Scare. But at this time, you had discrimination in jobs. You also had a big presence of police raiding gay bars and meeting places for LGBTQ people. Uh, engaging in entrapment mm -hmm. policies and also publicly printing names in newspapers following these types of arrests, which would then cause folks to lose their job and their reputations. The 50s yep. kind of sucked to be queer in yep. the United States. There are pockets of some great stuff, but in general, the, the general uh, atmosphere was... Yep. No bueno. And again, that's another thing that we're still kind of living in the aftermath of a lot of the 50s, I think, for both gender and sexuality, dealing mm -hmm. with kind of undoing, unraveling all of the things that the 50s brought us. Yeah. Yep. In so many ways. All the people who are like, I want to go back to the 50s. Fuck, like, no, no, I don't. Mm -mm. Like, your poodle skirt is no, not worth no. it. 
No. No. Mm-mm. Not no, at thank all. you. So that brings us to, let's get into our bio. Let's talk about Byron Rustin. Talk about his life. So he was born March 17th, 1912 in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and was named after a local writer born in the 19th century named uh, Bayard Taylor. So his parents were Florence, called Sissy by her family, Florence Rustin and Archie Hopkins, but Bayard was raised by his maternal grandparents, Julia Davis Rustin and Jennifer Rustin. He actually didn't find out from his grandparents until he was like 12 or 13 years old that Florence was not, in fact, his sister, but yep. was his yep. mother. He was raised as the ninth of their 13 children. His grandfather, Jennifer, had been born a slave until the adoption of the 13th Amendment, whereupon he served as a steward in the local Elks Lodge. Which actually was really good for the family. They had a lot of connections through his job. Um, they always had, you know, food left over from the kitchens. Um, had a lot of connections with, like, wealthy white folks in the area. And Jennifer was very well liked. Of his grandfather, Bayard said, quote, None of us can remember a single unkindness in him. So he was just a good dude. Took care Aww. of his family. Julia, who, man, I would love to talk about Julia. She's uh, just, like, uh, uh, she's so amazing. Good. Amazing. Yeah, she was born a free woman in Pennsylvania and worked as a domestic in the Butler household who made sure that she got a Quaker education and even paid for her training as a nurse. Now, as a Quaker, Julia taught Bayard the values of nonviolence and of not losing one's temper no matter the provocation. Bayard said of her, quote, We were told that we should never discuss an issue when we were brought up, when we were wrought up, but only when we were calm. We were taught that it was too tiresome to hate and that we should never go to sleep without first reconciling differences that had occurred during the day. We should never raise the question as to who had caused a dispute, for nothing constructive was to be gained by arguing over who started what. Yeah, she, the more you read about Julia, the more you see just how much influence she had on the person that Bayard became, especially in, like, Mm -hmm. the values of nonviolence and non-aggression, the way he, you know, interacted with his jailers on various occasions like he learned so much from his grandmother yeah there's there's actually one quote that i forgot to put in our outline that i love uh that i got from a book that i read that is you know in in regards to like how she was how she was so nice to people when she had seen so much bullshit she had this really fantastic quote that is oh i decided long ago that i was not going to let people mistreat me and in addition give me indigestion (laughs) (gasps) oh she sounds great (laughs) yeah anyway i like had to like get up and like run and get my book just for that she is excellent excellent. she also taught bayard the value of activism and helping other people so she founded a nursery for black working mothers and served on the board for visiting black nurses in her area she was an early member of the naacp and her home was a kind of hub for the black community around her people like w.e.b dubois educator mary mcleod bethune and activist slash poet james weldon johnson stayed with the rustins when they passed through so like bayard grew up around like the early civil rights activists like he they were in his household and he interacted with them so the rustins were local caterers and fairly wealthy they could afford to educate the children who wanted it one of the daughters became a teacher another one became a nurse Florence, who was Bayard's mother, actually dropped out of school and took up with Hopkins, who is a muscular laborer, of whom Bayard said, quote, he drank an inordinate amount, gambled an inordinate amount, and played around with girls an inordinate amount. So that was his dad, his biological father, not the man who raised him. What I think is lovely is that, I mean, given the kind of person that Hopkins was, 
Florence's parents didn't actually like pressure her to marry him, which in the 50s was a pretty big deal, you know, or like during mm-hmm. around this time period. So he was born in 19, 1912, but like still like in the early 19th, 20th century, the idea of like not pressuring your daughter to marry someone that she got pregnant by was like pretty revolutionary. So they didn't force her to marry this scoundrel of a man, <laughs> but instead they adopted her baby as their own. And as you said, Lee, they raised him as their ninth child and he grew up believing Florence was his older sister. But even after he found out, like he never really had a close relationship with his birth mother. And when she later remarried, he actually referred to her children as his cousins rather than as his half siblings. Yeah, well, you're, you know, you're raised by your grandparents, like, it sticks. Yep. Oh, she was so good. I just, I have, I have, like, one last thing about Julia that I had to put in here is that, so when Bayard was in school, so Bayard was left-handed, yay, go Southpaws, and at that time, right, schools were often trying to get people who were left-handed to not be left-handed, and one of the first acts of civil disobedience that he ever saw was his mother storming into the school and telling the school that they could not force her child to write with his right hand. She had gone in and basically just, it was like the first time that he saw that she like supported her, his individuality and was willing to stand up quite literally for what she believed in. So I just, I love that. Yeah, that's great. Speaking of school, where they lived was still segregated. It wasn't the law, but I mean, by default, it was segregated because of the Jim Crow laws. So even though outside of school, he played with children from a variety of backgrounds, he went to a segregated elementary school before intending an integrated upper school where he did really well. He did really well in high school. If you look at like his high school yearbook, his list of activities and honors is longer than any of his peers. He was the first black student to win the school's oratory award in its 40-year history. This kid, like, man, Bayard Rustin <laughs> in in school. And, th- and this is only the beginning of, like, boy did everything. He wrote poetry for the school magazine, won the school essay contest, performed leading roles in plays, and was placed in advanced curriculum courses. As if that weren't enough, he also lettered in football and track, which led to his first act of civil disobedience, his first protest. So when the teams traveled, many of the hotels wouldn't allow him or any of the other black players to stay at the hotels because the hotels were segregated. So when the track team went to Altoona, he and a group of others, when they found out that the hotel wasn't going to let them stay, they refused to compete in the track tournament. So yeah, that was, I mean, he learned it's early on, (laughs) early on in high school. He was like, nope, nope. If you're not going to like, if you won't let me stay here, then I won't compete in track. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was also a really great singer. So he did everything, like literally everything. He was good at everything. He had a beautiful tenor voice, made a bunch of recordings throughout his lifetime. God. I love him. He just seems like he was, he's so well-rounded. Yeah. Not that you, not that you have to be, but he just like everything you read about him is just so impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He attended Wilberfer- uh, Wilberforce University in Ohio on a music scholarship, which his family actually didn't have the money to send him to college, but Bishop Wright of the African Methodist Episcopal Church actually helped him secure this scholarship, and he actually provided for his travel and room and board expenses. Most sources say he was expelled for organizing a strike to protest the poor quality of the cafeteria food, which also would not be the last time he did a strike or a protest about cafeterias. And he also, at that time, had refused to join the ROTC. 
However, as we'll talk about a little bit later, there are also potential other explanations for him leaving Wilberforce University, which we'll talk about later. And then he also, after that, he attended Cheney State Teachers College, which is now Cheney University of Pennsylvania, also on a music scholarship, but he left before finishing his degree. They awarded him a posthumous Doctor of Humane Letters in 2013. He said that he grew bored of the material, he wasn't challenged, and he left. Again, we'll get more into that later. Mm -hmm. So in 1937, he completed an activism training course with the American Friends Service Committee, which is a Quaker group, and then moved to Harlem to live with his sister slash aunt and began studying at City College, which was a pretty like a hotbed of political activism at the time. He also there joined the 15th Street meeting of the Quaker Society of Friends and was involved with the Youth Communist League, attracted by its anti-war stance, and then became involved with the YCL, uh, with the YCL in defending the Scottsboro Boys, which for those of you who don't know anything about the Scottsboro Boys, they were nine black young men in Alabama who had been accused of raping two white women. Um, however, he would soon become disillusioned with the Youth Communist League and communism in general when the American Communist League ceased actively defending the Scottsboro Boys and reversed its opinion on the war efforts soon after Hitler's forces invaded the Soviet Union in 41. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a few years um, earlier than that, shortly after meeting a Philip Randolph, who would become a very important person in Rustin's life, and he would go on to work with him in FOR and CORE and with MLK. Randolph had actually, he had walked into Randolph's organization asking for a job and was turned away with Rustin warning him about his views on communism. He actually said to Rustin, I am sorry to know that you are associated with communists because I think you're going to discover that they are not really interested in civil rights. They're interested in utilizing civil rights for their own purposes. So by the time Rustin actually went to work for Randolph, he had already broken with the Youth Communist League and was beginning to rethink his previous commitments to communism because just more and more red flags continued to pop up. He did a lot of organizing work in, in communism, and he did a lot of things while he was in college with the Youth Communist League, but he had been disturbed early on by Russia's invasion of Finland, which was breaking their non-aggression pact at the time, and also just the party's retreat from commitments to racial justice in refusing to continue to support the Scottsboro Boys. That's, you know, when he ended up saying that's when he began to smell that there was something radically wrong. Mm -hmm. And he f made the final break when party officials instructed him to dismantle the Committee Against Discrimination. And so he officially resigned in protest. He was thinking, like, they were already done with him. They were just kind of, quote, letting him down easy. He recalled, quote, the communist primary concern was not with the black masses, but with the global objectives of the Soviet Union. So he walked out on communist tactics and ideals because heh, there were some problems. Mm -hmm. But he acknowledged that he learned a lot and he learned most of his important things about activism, about organizing and about writing clearly from his experience as a communist. Yeah. So he continued with his singing at the same time, too. He was a part of the blues singer Josh White's band, which was called Josh White and the Carolinians, and became a regular performer at the Cafe Society nightclub in Greenwich Village. And this actually, you know, at the time widened a lot of his social and intellectual contacts, which he later drew on for his activism work. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the Fellowship of Reconciliation. So having been disillusioned with communism, Rustin began working with members of the Socialist Party of Norman Thomas, particularly A. Philip Randolph, whom we mentioned, who was the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which became the first African-American-led union to gain an official membership to the American Federation of Labor, 
which you might remember from our labor union episode. Yay! Yay! Uh, another socialist mentor was the pacifist A.J. Must, leader of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, F-O-R, or FOR. FOR then hired Rustin as race relations secretary in 1941. And he toured the country speaking on race relations, war, peace, criminal justice policies. And the skills, knowledge, and contacts he gained during this period of his life were instrumental in his work for the civil rights movement. In fact, in 1956, Rustin actually went to Montgomery, Alabama at Randolph's urging to assist the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in sustaining the boycott. And soon after, he became a valued advisor to Martin Luther King. So... We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves there, but it was because of the contacts he made in the 40s that he ended up being connected with King in the 50s and 60s. Also in 1941, Randolph, Must, and Rustin organized a march on Washington to protest racial segregation in the armed forces, specifically, and discrimination in employment. They met with President Roosevelt and told him that they would march on Washington unless desegregation in the military happened. Uh, facing all that pressure kind of at the 11th hour, Roosevelt issued the Fair Employment Act, which banned discrimination in federal and defense industries, and Randolph decided to cancel the march. The armed forces weren't desegregated until 1948, though. Randolph thought that the organization had succeeded and he wanted to disband the Fellowship for Reconciliation. Um, Rustin was in super disagreement with him, yep. and he and some colleagues actually denounced him publicly in a national press conference, believing that he had, like, sold out to Roosevelt and thought that they should go on with the march. He would later come to... He would later say that he would come to regret this. And the interesting thing was that, like, Randolph never even mentioned it. Right. <laughs> he was like... He's like, like they, did, they, like, didn't talk for two years. But, like, Randolph just kind of whoosh, like water on a duck's back. But he, he saw it as, like, something when he was, like, young and rash and mm -hmm. more militant and was like, oh, that was a... That was a mistake. That was a mistake. I've made a huge mistake. Um, <laughs> so Rustin then traveled to California to help defend the rights of the more than 120,000 Japanese Americans who had been imprisoned in internment camps during World War II. And after that, he was appointed for Secretary of Student and General Affairs. And then in 1942, he helped two other four staffers named George Hauser and James L. Farmer and activist Bernice Fisher as they formed the Congress of Racial Equality, which is CORE, which was a pacifist organization founded on Gandhi's principles of nonviolent resistance. So he wasn't actually a founder himself, but they called him like CORE's uncle because mm -hmm. he was involved in helping them do that. Yeah. And uh, Farmer is the person who actually introduced Rustin to Gandhi's work. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Go ahead. You talk about how he was, how much Rustin was arrested. He got oh my arrested God, yeah. a lot. So, so his, yeah. So through the course of Bayard's life, Rustin was arrested over 25 times for various civil actions. So he was part of the early bus desegregation protests. And in 1942, he boarded a bus in Louisville bound for Nashville and sat in the second row. When asked multiple times to move back, he refused and police stopped the bus north of Nashville, and he was arrested, beaten, and imprisoned, but later released uncharged. That moment clarified for him both the necessity of his continued involvement in civil rights protests and in the need for him to openly act as such as a gay man. So this is a quote from him. As I was going by the second seat to go to the rear, a white child reached out for the ring necktie I was wearing and pulled it, whereupon its mother said, don't touch an 
N-word. If I go and sit quietly at the back of that bus now, that child, who was so innocent of race relations that it was going to play with me, will have seen so many blacks go into the back and sit down quietly that it's going to end up saying, they like it back there. I've never seen anybody protest against it. I owe it to that child, not only to my own dignity, I owe it to that child that it should be educated to know that blacks do not want to sit in the back, and therefore I should get arrested, letting all these white people in the bus know that I do not accept that. It occurred to me shortly after that it was an absolute necessity for me to declare homosexuality, because if I didn't, I was a part of the prejudice. I was aiding and abetting the prejudice that was a part of the effort to destroy me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's such a powerful, like, stance to take. Yeah. So, in 1943, Rustin wrote the Interracial Primer, which was a pamphlet that warned people of the increasing racial tensions. It was prophetic, man. Mm. Like... Even the bits and pieces that we've read, you're just like, oh, wow, he saw so clearly what was going on. So he encouraged readers to know what he called the facts regarding the lack of any real difference between the black and white races, while also encouraging them to study Gandhi's peaceful ways, cultivate interracial friendships, and get involved politically with churches and local politics. Some of the quotes that we really liked from this, quote, If present irritating conditions continue, before long we surely shall see race riots. If not during the war, then after. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Hmm. Prophetic. Prophetic, man. He also said, there is no difference between Negro and white blood plasma. Mm -hmm. Which is true. Yeah. Deep down, we're all the same. He also, in the pamphlet, called out the media's racism in highlighting the race of accused criminals when the defendants were black, but never when white. Hmm. Gosh, doesn't Hmm. that sound familiar? Hmm. He said... Quote, it would be very important not to identify all criminal activity on the part of black people as, quote, so-and-so, black, whereas you don't also say, so-and-so, white, did this crime. Hmm. Gosh, if that's not showing mugshots (sighs) of successful black people and showing, like, graduation photos of white murderers on TV, I don't know what the fuck it is. Yep. Yep. Well, that still happens. Exactly. Like, even that this exact thing he, thing he's talking about still happens, where they will identify the race. If it's a non-white person, they will always identify their race, but rarely do they ever identify a white person as having done it. Of course. Yep. Yeah. And this is the 40s, y'all. 40s. This has been going on for, like, 70 years. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Whew. Later that same year, Rustin, Hauser, and a few other pacifists from four, were arrested for and convicted of violating the Selective Service Act. Although Rustin was a Quaker, so he had grounds to resist the draft based on his religion, Bayard believed that the alternatives to military service were pointless and didn't offer a sufficient challenge to the war system. Plus, he had Methodist and Jewish friends whose conscientious objector claims were not accepted by the government. So he refused to register for service and apply for official conscientious objector status and was sent to federal prison in Ashland, Kentucky where he soon became known as a notorious offender for his role in organizing black inmates to protest unfair treatment. Like, he just can't help himself. Anywhere he goes, he's going to start a protest. And I love it. I love it. Yeah, he explained, quote, Inasmuch as I could not see myself taking the privilege that went with being a Quaker while my friends were forced to go to jail, I took the position that I had to stand with my friends. I refused to register. I refused to take the physical examination, and I was sentenced to prison for three years. So I spent most of 1943, 44, and half of 45 in federal penitentiaries. Yep. Like, he will take a stand wherever he can. Yep. He also grew, like, while he was in prison, not just for organizing protests, he also drew criticism for his open displays of affection with some of the other inmates and for being, quote, arrogant about his rights, according to the prison guards. 
<laughs> Which <laughs> probably just means he said he had them. Like, yeah. <laughs> I have rights. You can't violate them. Mm-hmm. Most of his family was embarrassed by his imprisonment, but not his grandmother, Julia. Oh, I just love her. She's great. Who actually valued his decision to, quote, follow the dictates of his conscience. She thought he was doing a great thing. She was like, you do you, honey. You're doing amazing. <laughs> she would have been like that that gif of like the like, you're doing amazing, sweetie. <laughs> sweetie, with the camera. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Keep doing it. Oh, man. So after basically getting taken out of the Kentucky prison for being a troublemaker, he was transferred to Lewisburg, where he remained from 44 to 45. And there, he got in trouble for organizing protests against segregated dining facilities. There you go. Which I just like, there you go. There's there's cafeteria number two. Mm-hmm. And he argued with the authorities about the use of inmate registration numbers to track medical supplies. Yep. And while while he, if the, as if that weren't enough, while he was in prison, he was even helping for organize their Free India Commission. And after he was released, he was frequently arrested for protesting British colonial rule in India and Africa. Like he just like he anywhere he went, he would mm-hmm. he got involved in everything, which we'll see. Because this is just the beginning, guys. Like yeah, he actually at I think it was at Lewisburg where the administrators were like, uh, he's gonna cause so much trouble. You know what? Just like keep them all. Him and his, like, friends, just keep them confined to the library. Make sure that they don't go anywhere else and cause any other trouble. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. Oh, man. That's everything. Oh, man. So after he gets out in 1947, Rustin and Hauser organized the Journey of Reconciliation, which was the first of the Freedom Rides to test the ruling that had banned discrimination in interstate travel as unconstitutional. The ruling was uh, Morgan v. Commonwealth of Virginia, if you're interested in looking up the Supreme Court case. So the two of them organized 14 men of various races to ride in pairs between Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Kentucky. At the time, the NAACP thought the tactics were too meek, but many, even despite the fact that they thought that these were too meek and they should have been more, you know, aggressive, many of the participants were still arrested. Rustin himself was arrested and sentenced to 22 days on a chain gang for violating Jim Crow laws. While there, he developed his reputation for being friendly with his jailers, and he made friends with the most notoriously mean guard. He would, like, ask him about his family and how his day was and ask him to tell him about his children and, you know, took anything the guard threw at him. And eventually, on his departure 22 days later, the guard said, and earnestly so, it has been nice to know you, Mr. Rustin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he just earned this reputation for being like very, you know, as his grandmother told him, for being very calm in the face of people like hurling abuse at him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of like being calm and collected during all of this, he also had a really good sense of humor in that. So with being sentenced to the chain gang, he got 22 days and his compatriot in the journey for uh, the, um, in the his compatriot of one of the journeyers was a man named Igal Rodenko, who was a Jew. And the judge actually was like, you know, I expect this kind of behavior from, you know, the Negroes, but you, a respectable white man, are in lots of trouble. I'm going to give you 30 days. And uh, to try to, you know, make light of things, years later, Rustin would actually joke to Rodenko, Quote, well, you see, there are some advantages to being black, and Rudenko would laugh. (laughs) (laughs) I got fewer days on the chain gang than you did. (laughs) Yeah. um, I just, I I love little little bits in there that just really show his personality. Yep. Anyway. (laughs) Yep. So yeah, in 48, he traveled to India to learn nonviolent resistance from the organizers of the Gandhian movement. And then he's continuing to work in other areas in 
Between 47 and 52, he met with leaders of the independence movements in Ghana and Nigeria. In 51, he formed the Committee to Support South African Resistance, which later became the American Committee on Africa. In 53, he was arrested for sexual activity in a parked car in Pasadena, California, which we will go into in more detail later. He was originally charged with vagrancy and lewd conduct, but he pled out and served 60 days in jail for sex perversion, despite it being consensual because, you know sodomy laws. And upon his release, he was fired from four, but became the executive secretary of the War Resisters League, which was a secular pacifist organization. In 55, he was an unidentified contributor to the American Society of Friends essay called Speak Truth to Power, a Quaker Search for an Alternative to Violence, which was an essay about the Cold War and one of the most widely read and commented upon pacifist essays. This is a very well-known pacifist essay. Mm -hmm. Uh, was written at the time to protest what was going on in Vietnam. And he he was actually the one who chose for his involvement to remain quiet because he was worried that, you know, given his recent arrest in 53, that his sexual orientation might be used to target the essay and, you know, for like abuse or people ignoring it who, you know, disagreed with his sexual orientation. So he, this is a, this, an ex- this was a time when he purposefully asked them to keep his specific involvement you know, under wraps as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, apparently the others involved protested, you know, when he was like, no, I'm going to leave my name off. Um, They were really trying to get him to put his name on. And he said, dear friends, I am at peace. I ask that you leave my name off. And he apparently rose and sang, uh, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, followed by there is a bomb in Gilead. And no one could just like... Everyone was so moved they couldn't respond. Oh, yeah. Oh, we'll get into some of some other instances of of support in his life. Yes, later. yes. So in '56, he took a leave of absence from the War Resisters League to work with Martin Luther King. Woo! Yay! This is what everyone. If you know who he is, it's more likely that you know him for his work with Martin Luther King. Yes. Yeah, he became uh, Martin Luther King's advisor on the Gandhian movement while King was working on the Montgomery bus boycott. And according to Rustin, before his arrival, King had little knowledge of nonviolent resistance, and he was the one to actually convince King to abandon the use of armed defense, including his own personal handgun. Um, and at that time, too, like, King's entire family was being protected by armed guards with rifles mm-hmm. because, huh, a lot of death threats. And Rustin was the person to say to King, like, we cannot fully commit ourselves to the philosophy of nonviolence when there are all these guns around. Yep. So, there you go. Mm-hmm. And then in 1957, he and Martin Luther King actually began organizing the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Bayard actually affi- originally wanted it to be called the Southern Leadership Conference, and King insisted that it have Christian in the name, and Rustin was afraid that it would like alienate people of other faiths from joining, but uh, King ended up being right, and it didn't stop other people. But soon, other leaders in the movement became worried that Rustin's sexual orientation would hinder the civil rights movement, and in 1960... Oh, boy, this guy. Uh, oh, I hate US, him so much. U.S. Representative Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who was who was a black man who was uh, elected to Congress, which was pretty remarkable then. I mean, he was he was mixed race and he was very white passing. So not that surprising. But he, he had a, a big ego and mm-hmm. a lot of say in the movement. And so yep. he actually forced Rustin's retirement from the SCLC, threatening to discuss his 1953 arrest in Congress. So, although Rustin had never hidden his orientation and his arrest was public record, at this point, neither had actually been widely discussed outside of civil rights leadership. Oh, Powell's going to come up again. Um, I hate this guy. I hate him so much. 
Also in 1957, Rustin, the civil rights leader Ella Baker, and Randolph, the president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Arm Porters. And he was also, you know, Randolph was making a name. He was doing a lot of other things, too. He was also the president of the Negro American Labor Council, as well as the vice president of the AFL-CIO. So the three of them organized what's called the Prayer Pilgrimage for Freedom. Now, it was originally not meant to be a prayer pilgrimage. So this was held at the Lincoln Memorial on May 17th, 1957, and it marked the third anniversary of Brown v. Board of Education, which is the landmark Supreme Court case that was against school segregation. So the event organizers actively urged the government to uphold the decision as while it was, you know, federal law, basically, um, it was being blocked at state and local level. So a lot of schools at this time were de facto segregated, even though the Supreme Court had ruled against school segregation. So it was supported by the NAACP and the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, which we'll call it because it's shorter. So uh, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Yeah, this guy again. So he asked the organizers to, quote, not embarrass the Eisenhower administration. So they were originally going to do a protest, but it was turned into a prayer commemoration because Powell didn't want to embarrass the administration. So he wanted them to tone it down. Yeah, yeah. This was King's first Lincoln Memorial speech, and it set down voting rights like it was what solidified like voting rights as an important part of the agenda for the civil rights movement. This was when he gave his give us the ballot speech, as it's known by, which established him as a leader and orator within the civil rights movement. So this was King's, I mean, basically his breakout moment, which was organized by Rustin and Randolph and Ella Baker. Yeah. And so then in 1960, King, Randolph and Rustin prepared to march on the Democratic National Convention of presidential candidate John F. Kennedy and his running mate Lyndon B. Johnson in protest of their weak position on civil rights. There had been talk about creating a civil rights act and there was a lot of really weak kind of wibbly wobbly language in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, the DNC actually sent guess who again, Powell, to halt the march. Yep. Powell, and this is this is where we really freaking hate this guy. So Powell, at this point, threatened to accuse Martin Luther King of having an affair with Rustin. Um, they, he was going to say that they were having an affair and basically, like, derail the movement. So, you know, they, they denied it, but after consultation, King decided to distance himself from Rustin. Rustin had offered to resign from his post, and he was expecting Martin Luther King to kind of go to bat for him, but he was very shocked when King accepted his uh, resignation. Yep. Rustin's partner, Walter Neagle, who we'll talk about a little later, uh, but he's his, part- his partner uh, later in life, said, quote, It was a personally painful situation for him, I think, because he was disappointed that Dr. King didn't stand up for him or didn't have more backbone. But in all fairness to Dr. King and to Bayard, Bayard understood that this was a political move and it was probably better for Dr. King to do what he did, politically speaking, in terms of the movement. Yep. Yeah, Rustin himself said, My being gay was not a problem for Dr. King, but a problem for the movement. I told Dr. King that if advisors closest to him felt I was a burden, then rather than put him in a position that he had to say leave, I would go. He was just so harassed that I felt it was my obligation to relieve him of as much of that as I could. And then also, Dr. King came from a very protected background. I don't think he'd ever known a gay person in his life. I think that he had no real sympathy or understanding. I think he wanted very much to, but I think he was largely guided by two facts— 
One was that already people were whispering about him. Secondly, he was surrounded by people who, for their own reasons, wanted to get rid of me. Uh, but the nice thing is that in response to Powell, Clarence Jones, who is King's speechwriter, fought fire with fire. He told Powell that <laughs> if he went so to the media with the rumor about King, he would litter Harlem, the district that Powell represented, with posters and pictures of all the women that Powell had slept with. Oh my god! You want to fight dirty? I will fight dirty. Good, good job, Clarence Jones. Like, that makes me so happy. Yeah, it makes me really happy. <laughs> oh. And the threat worked. Powell backed down, and King proceeded to protest the 1960 Democratic Convention with Rustin as the sole casualty. All right. But that brings us to the March on Washington. Yeah. The big one. The big one. Big one he's known for. Big, big thing that he was involved in. Despite, you know, having done many marches that had been planned and then canceled before. So, yep. despite hesitation from leadership, when the time came to organize a march on Washington in 1963, Rustin was a natural choice, pushed for by A. Philip Randolph. Uh, 1963 was the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, so the idea of marking the occasion with a peaceful march made sense. And this was the biggest undertaking that they had ever taken. The goal mm -hmm. was to get 100,000 people to march on the mall. Planning began in December 1961, envisioning two days of protest, including sit-ins and lobbying, followed by a mass rally at the Lincoln Memorial, again, symbolically significant. Uh, Randolph and Rustin built an alliance of civil rights, religious, and labor organizations to march on the platforms of Jobs and Freedom to advocate for civil and economic rights for blacks in America, including NAACP and the SCLC. And, you know, these were organizations that didn't always see eye to eye during the civil rights movement. Also, one of the big groups in attendance for the uh, March on Washington was SNCC, which is the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was headed by John Lewis, who did a lot of work in the later uh, parts mm -hmm. of the civil rights movement. And so... The original plan was focused on economic inequality, but after negotiating with all the other groups, they expanded their goals to include those groups more focused on broader civil rights concerns rather than specifically on job inequality. There were a lot of varying voices in the room, and Rustin made it his goal to basically let everybody say their things and then say, okay, cool, I'm the person who's like making the decisions so that things go smoothly. There were a lot of, e mm -hmm. he would say that there were a lot of egos in the room to contend with. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Speaking of which, in June, leaders from several organizations formed the Council for United Civil Rights Leadership. And this is this core group of people became known as like the big six. These are like the big people, the big egos in the room. So we have A. Philip Randolph, who is the head of the march, James Farmer, who we've mentioned, uh, John Lewis, chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Martin Luther King Jr., president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Roy Wilkins, president of the NAACP, and Whitney Young, president of the Natural national urban league so these are the big six people the big six like names in the room so wilkins and young objected to rustin being a leader on the grounds that he was gay a former communist and had resisted the draft during world war ii so yeah wilkins and young objected to rustin being a leader but he was eventually accepted as randolph's deputy organizer as long as he was the you know lead organizer for the thing and also managed political fallout yeah, he insisted that he be involved, um, and everybody else was like, all right, but you're cleaning up the mess. Yep. If anything happens. You have to deal with it. So, yeah, throughout the planning process, Rustin feared the march might get violent, and 
you know, damage any pending legislation that was in, on the line. He was key in assembling 4,000 volunteer U.S. Marshals to help defend those on the march, though they were not allowed to act against outside agitators. They were there to make sure things went okay. He also trained bus drivers to direct traffic and scheduled the podium speakers and was also key in pushing for a good sound system, maintaining, quote, we cannot maintain order where people cannot hear. Yeah, he set it up so that the U.S. Marshals were allowed, like, around the radius, but they weren't allowed in, like, a 400 foot yep. of, of any of the marchers. He's also the person who got set up, like, all of the sanitation and mm-hmm. all of the parking and basically every single project management thing you could potentially think of. It was... Uh, Rustin, who was behind it. I also really love, so during this time, he had actually had a couple of talks with Malcolm X, and who Mm -hmm. was uh, a far more um, militant side of the coin. And uh, Malcolm X had actually originally intended to do a speech before the march, denouncing it. And Rustin talked to him and said, hey, this will, you know, split people and prevent people from coming and we really can't afford to not have people come here. And so really respecting Rustin, Malcolm X decided to instead do his like press conference during the march so that it would not detract from like actually getting people there. He decided to like put his own things behind him for the good of like the community. Yep. Which is awesome. Yep. So here we have another uh, guy we don't like. No. Strom Thurmond. Senator Strom Thurmond from South Carolina. So he, a few weeks before the march, he railed against Rustin for being, quote, a communist, draft dodger, and homosexual, which I think is great. I just love that. In terms of, like, I feel like some people could own it. You could own, like, proud communist, draft dodger, and homosexual. I'm not a communist, so maybe I change it to socialist. Stick that on a t-shirt? Yep. (laughs) Socialist, draft dodger, and homosexual. So he, Strom Thurmond, entered his arrest file into the official record. Thanks. Thanks. So he went back and found the 53 arrest file and entered it into the official record. He also produced an FBI photo of Rustin talking to King while King was in the bath, implying that the two of them were having an affair, though both denied it. Um, so Strom Thurmond was... <laughs> yeah, white supremacist asshole. Gross. Yep. He's a, he's a shit. Yeah. So, yeah, but but the march went ahead anyway, regardless of what Strom Thurmond did, and it was held on August 28th, 1963. So, Lee said earlier that originally they were hoping for 100,000. Well, they got double that. At least 200,000 people converged on Washington to participate. The highest estimates that we have uh, say as many as 300,000. But most people put it ballpark it at close to 250,000 people, um, 75 to 80% of whom were black. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of people. Like, double, if not triple, what they were expecting. Yeah. And Rustin himself was actually involved in the official programming, not just uh, the organization of the march. He led a tribute to the, quote, Negro women fighters for freedom that usually got shoved to the sidelines of the movement, which introduced Daisy Bates, Diane Nash, Prince E. Lee, Rosa Parks, and Gloria Richardson. And then... He also, uh, so there were many, many speakers and performances and everything ended on King's iconic I Have a Dream speech. And then Rustin went up following that by slowly reading the list of demands and then urging attendees to take action. And then he and Randolph, who was up there with him, posed for like a photo that went on, I believe, Time Magazine. I believe it was Life. Life Magazine. We and we'll have that. And I think we'll we'll even put up a photo of the official programming that we have. Though you will notice Rustin's name is not actually on the official programming, even though he was involved. But we'll put both that, the photo of Life Magazine from Time, 
no, Life, Life. Life. I'm confusing myself now. Life magazine, as well as uh, a photo of the official programming. So, yeah, in the aftermath, while mass media declared it a success due to the high turnout, both Randolph and Rustin started to question their belief in the viability of the march to generate change. Uh, King himself still believed in the march and continued to organize similar events in the civil rights movement. One one element to say about the legacy, you know, from this is that in 2013, in the commemoration of the march, in 2013, President Barack Obama actually awarded Rustin, as well as 15 others, a posthumous Presidential Medal of Freedom. So that's pretty cool. Finally got recognized for it 70 years later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 60. 60. No, 50. 50. 50. 50. Yeah, it was the 50th. What the F is up with my math? I don't know. <laughs> it, 50 years you're, later. You're gay. That's what's I, up I with don't your do, math. It's true, though. I don't do math. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so back to the 60s. In 1964, Reverend Milton Glamison and other communities in Harlem asked Rustin to organize a citywide boycott of schools to protest their de facto segregation. And more than 400,000 citizens participated in the one-day boycott on February 3rd, 1964, including many Puerto Rican families as well as black ones. The protest was nonviolent and it demanded a full integration of the city's schools. It also challenged the coalition between black Americans and white liberals, leading to backlash from white liberals against some of the black leaders. Rustin denounced Galamison for trying to organize another boycott for March and abandoned the coalition. Yep. Yep. He then organized a march on May 18th of that year that called for maximum possible integration. And I just love this. This is a little tidbit for what's going on at the time. When he was invited to speak at the University of Virginia later that year, the administrators tried to ban him out of fear that he would organize a boycott because the school was still segregated. So I just love that they're like, oh, no, this guy organizes boycotts for segregation. Let's let's not have him. Yeah. <laughs> backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. Oh no. I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> I made a, yeah, this <laughs> the University of Virginia is like, oh no, I've made a huge mistake. Yeah. Uh so, you know, he continued to be involved in politics. Uh so in 1964, Martin Luther King Jr. was considering hiring him to be the executive director of the SCLC, but was advised against it due to Rustin becoming increasingly devoted to the political theories of Max Schachtman, an anti-communist pro-democratic party thinker who was aligned with the AFL-CIO. Yeah, this 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 year really marks the transition for Rustin from doing more of his protest work to more of what we call like his political activism mm-hmm. and he gets a much more strongly associated with, like, specifically, like, political leanings rather than, like, protests in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So this is, like, a major shift. And, you know, one of the sources that I read actually, like, marked it down to, like, his and Randolph's perception that, like, the march didn't accomplish what they wanted. That, like, the protest march weren't, these those kinds of actions weren't actually accomplishing as much as they wanted them to. And so was attempting to, like, shift his focus to what he perceived of as being a more viable avenue for creating and sustaining change. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really, you know, comes from his kind of disillusionment or belief that, like, the protests and marches, like, while they were, like, a great thing to do, he didn't see them as being, like, a viable avenue to continue to generate change. Yeah. Well, a lot of times, too, it came down to his belief that, Racial equality would come out of economic equality. Yep. And so that's where he kind of differed in in views and actions. And, you know, he's just like a pacifist and anti-capitalist. So, yep. Yep. Very, very, very anti-capitalist. Yeah. <laughs> so in that same year, he became an advisor to the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which was attempting to gain legitimacy and recognition for being the non-Jim Crow delegation from Mississippi. When they were offered non-voting seats in the DNC, Rustin urged the delegation to take it, angering some of the members who wanted voting seats that had been given to the official segregationist party. So, yep. 
there's a uh, a thread throughout Rustin's later life that he was not militant enough. Mm-hmm. There were some who even like called him an Uncle Tom, which is ridiculous considering everything that he did. But yep. there's a lot of different ideas about his uh, his views on you know where things were going in the nineteen late 1960s and 1970s with the Black Power movement and the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X. So there was like a big break there. Yep. Yeah. After the Civil Rights Act was passed in 64, Rustin advocated for closer ties between the Civil Rights Movement and the Democratic National Convention, especially due to the party's poor, you know, especially with the party's poor working class whites, given their strong union and labor ties. And this is kind of what we were saying earlier. He was very, he very much believed that racial equality came from economic equality. And so he really pushed for forming ties with the political party that valued economic equality, which at the time was the Democratic National Convention. During this time, he wrote the influential article called From Protest to Politics, wherein he analyzed the changing economy and its implication for Black Americans. And in it, he argued that the rise of automation would decrease the need for low-skill, high-paying jobs, putting many Black Americans at risk. He advocated for working-class folks to work together across racial lines for their common goals. And his words were quite prescient because as we've seen, you know, we've seen this kind of dislocation for urban black folks in America in, you know, in the years following due to, you know, automation and changes in industry. And, you know, as we were saying, this this fits with his overall goal of moving from protest to working with labor unions and their organizers towards common economic goals of both white and black working class folks. Um, Rustin believed that the black community was in danger of falling prey to what he considered identity politics, particularly the Black Power movement and other Black nationalist movements. From his perspective, he believed that such movements were, you know, a fantasy of the Black middle class and alienated labor unions, which at the time were, of course, made up of predominantly white working class folks. But he really believed that these were the people were instrumental allies in the fight for economic freedom and equality. And because of it, he was accused of selling out by many of his former colleagues and of trading his more radical leanings for what they called professional-style activism or, you know, being like a toady of the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. basically, is what he was accused of. So that, that did not stop him, though. <laughs> Rather, he increased his ties to the labor movement, which, as we've been saying, believed was the vehicle for economic freedom. And he founded and then directed the A. Philip Randolph Institute, which coordinated the AFL-CIO's work work on civil rights and economic justice. In 72, he became the national co-chairman of the Socialist Party of America. And in his first speech, he called for organizing against the, quote, reactionary politics of the Nixon administration. I just like that he hated Nixon, (laughs) which of course he would. Also in 1984, he was arrested after participating in a, quote, silent demonstration in support of the pay equity demands of striking clerical workers at Yale University. So just keeps getting arrested. Just yep. keeps, keeps doing it. Keeps doing it. Yep. He was involved. I mean, he was involved in a lot of things, not just the labor movement. He was staunchly anti-communist in his later years and uh, anti-Soviet, but was also heavily critical of the way the Vietnam War was being waged. So even though he and other labor union activists did give support to Johnson's containment policy in Vietnam, it was a very critical one. They were very critical of, you know, the way the war was being waged. So in 1964, he wrote that he was, quote, angered and humiliated by the kind of war being waged, a war of torture, a war in which civilians were being machine gunned from the air and in which American napalm bombs are being dropped on the villages. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he's a pacifist. pacifist. Didn't like Vietnam. (laughs) 
he defended military intervention by apartheid South Africa on the part of the black labor movements there, and he accused the Soviet Union of having uh, designs on Africa, especially the involvement of Russia and Cuba in the Angolan independence. So yep. he, you know, just kind of everywhere. Yep. He also saw a lot of parallels between the Jewish experience and that of black Americans and was concerned about unity between the two groups. Jews in Soviet nations faced similar struggles to blacks as he saw it, and so he became a leading voice in advocating for the relocation of Soviet Jews to Israel. He worked closely with Senator Henry Jackson in the mid-1960s, who introduced legislation that tied trade relations with the Soviet Union to their treatment of Jews. And in 1966, he chaired, Rustin chaired a commission on the rights of Soviet Jews and throughout the 70s and 80s maintained close ties with the Soviet Jewish movements, including writing articles, attending rallies, demonstrations, and vigils both in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, a lot of his colleagues in the black civil rights movement actually diverged from his ideas about Israel. They actually were really critical of him, saying that he was anti-Arab because he was supporting Israel, but he was coming at it from a... A person who was looking at, like, refugees. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like, support of Israel is complicated. But right. he was doing it from very specific ideals. And he also, you know, had had a long, long-term commitment to Jewish equality as well. Mm -hmm. Like, like from when he was a child. Yep. Uh, he also served as the Vice President International of the International Rescue Committee and worked to better the situation of refugees throughout the world. So he did... A lot everywhere. He was part of a contingent for the March for Survival to the Cambodian border, in which they were protesting the treatment of refugees by the Khmer Rouge. And during so, he attempted to deliver medical supplies and food to refugees. He toured refugee camps in Thailand in early 1987. He worked to gain aid for the Vietnamese, quote, boat people who were, you know, refugees who were trying to flee Vietnam on boats and rafts. And he wrote articles, testified in Congress to try to secure aid, and visited refugee camps multiple times. He actually commented in 1985 on his actions with the IRC, quote, It is my duty to go annually to such places as Thailand, where we have refugee camps, where we run medical and education programs, Pakistan, where we run them for the Afghanis, Europe, where we help the people who are fleeing from the crackdown on Solidarnosc in Poland, Europe, where we have efforts going on attempting to put pressure to get Jewish refugees out of Russia, Latin America, India. Now, I just got back from Botswana, Lesotho, and Swaziland, where I presented to the IRC a plan for the education and medical care of South African refugee children from age 12 to 17 who are being driven out for a variety of reasons. So, he did, I mean, if there were, like, refugees in trouble, he was there in the world. So, yep. yeah. Yep. Could not stop him. Nope. Nothing, nothing could stop him but for a perforated appendix yeah. that was originally misdiagnosed, which led to his death on August 24th, 1987. So we're going to talk a little bit about his legacy. And he's, you know, the last, I don't know, five, ten years or so, he's enjoyed kind of a revival and recognition due to his involvement in and subsequent erasure from the civil rights movement, especially in being so closely tied to King. So we're seeing a lot of people are starting to recognize him for the work that he's done in the last, you know, decade or so. But still, like, it's really important that we don't conflate him with King, though what we think of King's own ideology might not been as we've been taught, but that's for a different podcast, probably not you know, our podcast, but I can definitely recommend going on Twitter and looking, especially through, 
I forget the hashtag, but on uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, there was some really, really good stuff Mm -hmm. going around Twitter about recognizing that King is not the man that many people, especially many white people, tend to think of him as. He had a lot of things to say that we don't typically acknowledge. So anyway, like I said, different podcast. But Rustin himself um, has talked about the ways that he differed from King, even when they worked alongside of each other. Rustin believed a social movement, quote, had to be based on the collective needs of people at the time, regardless of color, creed, and race. So as we've said, Rustin was much more interested in working across racial lines, especially within the labor movement and, and unions and working towards economic equality and economic freedom. So there are others who recognize his legacy as a bit more mixed, which is interesting and we wanted to include this perspective as well. Many within queer spaces point to the problems involved in seeming to, you know, rank oppressions. In his speech that he gave in the 80s, he seemed to do this by saying that, you know, gay folks are the new black folks, a stance that seems to kind of ignore how vulnerable black men were in, in during the AIDS crisis. So kind of saying like, well, the new The new thing to focus on is gay rights, and that's kind of the successor to the civil rights movement. In short, there are many who say he wasn't intersectional enough, which was something that was kind of ironically going on in feminist spaces at the time. In the 80s was the discussion of, you know, intersecting oppressions rather than ranking oppressions, which one comes first, which one comes second. So ironically, though, like when it when it comes to economic goals, he, you know, was willing to talk about how both black and working class folks needed to work together and to see kind of how black identity intersected with working class identity. But it seems like he may have been struggling to do the same thing with his queer identity and his black identity of kind of learning how to talk about, you know, the intersectionality of being black and queer one, as one of our sources put it, quote, reading the histories of Rustin, I can't help but wonder if his struggle to find the right language to talk about the relationship between black and gay liberation was really about finding his footing on the shifting terrain beneath him. The challenge to be alert to multiple vulnerabilities at once and keep track of one's personal location in social movements is not just an artifact of an earlier time, however, something vibrant and exciting movements for racial and queer liberation are displaying today. Mm-hmm. So we thought that was like a really good kind of summary of at least a, like a current queer thinker thinking back on on Rustin's kind of engagement with queer identity and kind of his legacy in there, which is which is a bit more mixed for folks, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, which finally, after like an hour and a half of listening to us, uh, this is going to be a long episode, folks. We debated whether or not we would do this in two, but uh, I think we can do it in one. But I now so. we're now we're getting to the the gay stuff. I mean, everything about his life had to do with the gay stuff because he was gay. But why why do we think they're gay? Section now. Uh, yeah. So while Bayard never hid his sexuality, it was something that would somewhat exist in the backseat of his life because his commitment to racial justice was on the forefront of his mind until his later years in partnership with Walter Neagle and him starting to really embrace the LGBT rights movement. So while he was open about his sexuality, the stigma related to it meant that he faced many stipulations regarding his ability to be in the public eye of the civil rights movement, as we talked about. Mm-hmm. So... The focus on his experience as a gay man didn't happen until the 1980s, but we're going to talk about before then, and then we'll go into that. Yep. So Rustin became aware of his homosexuality when he was 14 on an overnight trip in 1926 to see his mother. Because of tight living quarters, he shared a bed with an older man who was staying in the same house, and they had sex that night, and it was his first experience. Yep. And shortly afterwards, he discussed the experience with his grandmother, and he would later recall, recall, quote, I never said, you know, I'm gay. 
I told her I enjoyed being with guys when I joined the parties for dating. And she said, is that what you really enjoy? I said, yes, I think I do. Her reply was, then I suppose that's what you need to do. I just, oh, Julia. She's, yeah. Julia. She's so good. <gasps> oh. Yeah. So he saw this as like her acceptance of the fact that he was gay. And even though he, you know, said, quote, it was never an encouragement, it was recognition. He said, mm-hmm. so I never felt it necessary to do a great deal of pretending. And I never had any feelings of guilt. Yep. So, you know, even though he would be embarrassed and mortified by certain things later on in his life, he never felt shame about himself, more the yep. repercussions of society, mm-hmm. society's views towards homosexuality. So that yep. leads us to his relationships and behavior at college. So while he was at Wilberforce and Cheney College, he developed many attractions for other men and he had sexual relationships. But he said that in those early days, he was much more interested in like sexual uh, relationships rather than like deep emotional connections and commitments. At Wilberforce, he developed a close friendship with another student who was from California, who would actually come home with him on holiday vacations. And Rustin said, quote, we never had any physical relationship, but a very intense, friendly relationship. At that point, I knew exactly what was going on, but I did not feel that I could handle such a physical relationship. So it seemed like he had trouble at the time being able to marry the two of, like, Mm -hmm. sex and attraction and, like, deep emotional commitment. Mm -hmm. Uh, A former classmate of Bayard at Wilberforce offered the explanation that rather than, or perhaps in addition to, his refusal to join ROTC and also the school cafeteria protests being the cause of his leaving the school, that he left because he had fallen in love with the son of the college president. So perhaps this was the same person. There's also speculation that he left Cheney College because of his sexual relationships with men. And when the administrators learned of his activities, they demanded his exit from the college in 1936. So Rustin later recalled that, quote, Dr. Leslie Pickney Hill, who was the president of Cheney, called me into his office and told me to get the hell out of there. In a 1985 interview, Bayard told the interview that at Cheney, he had, quote, been naughty and, quote, in a moment of youthful carelessness, he had made a mistake. So officially, both of these colleges will not discuss the reasons Bayard was dismissed, but there seems to be common connections that his homosexuality was a large determining factor. He mm-hmm. would say it was because of his, you know, protest actions, and I'm sure that it had a large part of it because it seemed like everywhere he went, he yep. was, you know, not just going to sit down and take it. Um, but it seems like that was also a big part. Mm-hmm. When Bayard moved to New York in 1937, it was not only significant for him in that it was the first time he was able to be around a large black population, but it was also opened up to him a gay community. In Harlem, he met Hal Johnson, one of the most important black musicians in Harlem at the time, the leader of the Hal Johnson Choir, who was also gay. And Rustin said of his time in Harlem, even though his visit to gay musicians like Johnson were for professional purposes, that the black gay cultural elites in Harlem, quote, could tell what my sexual orientation was, for gay people have a certain telegraph system amongst themselves. Just just Bayard Rustin casually talking about gaydar, everyone. Just, I love it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I thought this was really interesting, um, and it kind of goes back to, like, the discussions about, like, whether or not Bayard was intersectional enough. At the time, he respected and looked up to Johnson and others in, you know, the Harlem Renaissance because of the ways that he fit into the status quo necessary as a black gay man in Harlem. Uh, one of our sources, which is a collection of Bayard's writings that's edited by Devin Carbato and Donald Weiss, 
As they write in their introduction to the book, quote, Like many black gays, Rustin became adept at navigating the social mores of the African-American elite, wherein lesbians and gay men were accepted so long as they did not undermine black respectability by flaunting their sexuality. Rustin was determined to be a, quote, new Negro, taking his cues from none other than Elaine Locke, the black gay Howard professor and arbiter of the Harlem Rus Renaissance. From Rustin's perspective, Locke was a universalist, a person whose sexual identity defined neither who he was nor whom he associated with. Rustin aspired to manage both his race and his sexual orientation in a similar way. Right, which goes back to the comment. We talked a little bit about this when we did our Beady Woman's Blues mm. episode as well. Like that, that came up there too, because I mean, it was the Harlem Renaissance. So there's this really big question about black respectability and wider society not being put off, you know, them wider society being racist as well as homophobic. So almost in a sense, like picking your battles, which, mm -hmm. which do you want to be recognized for? Do you want to earn some kind of respectability as a black man? But in order to do so, you may have to downplay your sexuality in a way so that, you know, other people quote, won't be offended by, you know, that aspect of it. So it's, it's easy, I think, looking back to criticize people like Rustin or, you know, the, the women that we mentioned in the BD Women's Blues episode. Like it's, it's much easier from our much more, I think, comfortable position in the, you know, 21st century to say like, oh, they weren't intersectional enough. Which, you know, clearly there are people who believe that, but I think it does also ignore the very real cultural pressures that, you know, racism and the, and the civil rights movement put on black queer folk at the time mm -hmm. that, you know, it probably wasn't because they didn't want to be openly or, you know, I guess flagrantly that way. But like there were it's much more complicated than just. Well, they should have been as, you know, as open as we can be now. I was like, well, but context. Co yep, context is everything. Yeah. Yeah, regarding Locke, Bayard had said in his own words that he, quote, got to know Locke very well. He was gay and he held open house for the literati and for younger writers like Langston Hughes and Richard Wright. I suspected that he was more a model for me than anyone else. He never felt it necessary to discuss his gayness. The most people could say about Locke was that they suspected him of being gay. So that was mm -hmm. kind of the way that he operated in terms of his sexuality and kind of yep. how upfront he was about it. Mm -hmm. Yep. When Bayard was in jail as a conscientious objector, it wasn't just his race and his protest actions that marked him as a troublemaker, which we hinted at earlier. He frequently got in trouble for making passes at fellow inmates and having sexual encounters. He wrote letters to fellow inmate who was his lover, a man named Davis Platt, addressing the letters to Marie. Platt recalled once that, quote, I never had any sense at all that Bayard felt any shame or guilt about his homosexuality. That was rare in those days. Rare. Yeah. However, his openness made him vulnerable, and often Bayard faced consequences and shame around his same-sex behavior from other people. So when two inmates complained to administrators about his behavior, he was actually diagnosed with a, quote, psychopathic personality and was placed in isolation, which caused an immense amount of embarrassment for him. He was mortified, and he was convinced at this that he had betrayed the movement and caused Must, the leader of Four, and, like, one of his pacifist idols to lose faith in him. Hmm. In a letter to Must, he wrote that, you know, he said that it was a lapse in judgment that he attributed to his own, quote, weakness and stupidity, and he was concerned that he had, quote, jeopardized immeasurably the causes for which I believe I would be willing to die. Must responded, you know, saying that you have been guilty of gross misconduct 
conduct specially reprehensible in a person making the claims to leadership and, in a sense, moral superiority. But then later in the letter, consoles him and lets him know that he still has his support, saying, My admiration for your courage and estimate of your possibilities has never been greater. God is our refuge and strength. So, condemning his actions, but still supporting the man. Mm-hmm. So here we'll talk a little bit more about the 1953 morality charge arrest. So after establishing the Committee Against Apartheid in 1952 with other four members and traveling across the U.S. organizing conferences and leading protests against segregation at home and apartheid in South Africa, he was arrested in Pasadena, California on the charge of sexual perversion. So on January 21st, 1953, He had given a talk at the American Association of University Women, and afterwards he was approached by two white men asking him to join them for a party. They ended up having a threesome in a parked car. Wow. So, Holly as well. Open. That's a lot of... Yeah. That's a lot of uh, limbs to move around and fit in in a a car. car. Good gravy. Yeah. Yeah. So, the car was parked outside Bayard's hotel. And there they were arrested for lewd conduct. Bayard was convinced that he had been set up by the FBI in order to undermine the civil rights work he was doing. He was found guilty and sentenced to 30 days in prison. And as a result, he was released from his role with four for fear of his arrest charges compromising their work. A former four member who was also gay later recalled, quote, to be in prison, but not for something he believed him, broke him, just broke him. So this was the first time that Rustin had been jailed for something that was not related to the causes that he was fighting for. Quote, it was amongst the fellowship people that there was hypocrisy. It was there that I found some of the worst attitudes to gays. Many of the people in the four were absolutely intolerant in their attitudes. So yeah, Must was outraged, objecting to the idea that Rustin's actions jeopardized the reputation of four and at the same time accepted Rustin's recognition. Resignation. Yeah, this brought a new understanding of his vulnerability as a gay man for Rustin. And he would go on to say, quote, I now know that for me, sex must be sublimated if I am to live with myself in this world longer. So he realized that he, you know, had to keep things to himself, had to, you know, stem his attractions for the good of the cause, mm-hmm. which is really quite sad. Yeah. But... Not everyone in Bayard's life held the same views as Must in the FOR, however. Yay! A. Philip Randolph, A-plus guy, remained a staunch supporter of Rustin. Yay. I These are my favorite, like, I love this. So, uh, at, what, at some point, someone came to Randolph and said, Did you know that Bayard Rustin is a homosexual? Did you know that he's been arrested in California? I don't know how you could have someone who's a homosexual working for you. To which, badass Randolph replied, Well, if Bayard, a homosexual, is that talented and I know the work he does for me. Maybe I should be looking for somebody else homosexual who could be so useful. Oh my gosh! Yes. Yeah. Ah! Uh, Rustin also later said, quote, Had anyone said to him, Mr. Randolph, do you think I should openly admit that I am homosexual? His attitude, I am sure, would have been, quote, Although such an admission may cause you problems, you will be happier in the long run. Because his idea was that you have to be what you are. Oh. A+. plus. A-plus allyship, Randolph. Good job. Uh, Randolph's just the best. Right, and he would just, like, continue to be like, no, I need this man as my right-hand organizer. I refuse to be a part of anything if he is not, you know, at the forefront of this. I need him to be, like, he is the person we need. Right, because I think think Randolph was the one who pushed for Rustin being made his deputy organizer for the march. That, like, they didn't want Rustin involved. And Randolph's like, do you want me involved? 
then then Rustin has to be involved too. You don't get me without him. And it's just ugh. Oh, Was it like like great. like with him so goes my nation? Yeah. Oh, good job, Randolph. What a good. What yes. a good. So yeah, so we'll skip forward. Yes. So yeah, I mean that explains why for for much of Rustin's involvement during his years working with the civil rights movement and all of that, like there's not really a whole lot to say about his gayness because he sublimated it um for a very long time. But at the age of 65, Bayard met his long-term partner of 10 years, Walter Neagle, and they settled in New York City and spent the last decade of Rustin's life together. They're cute. Neagle mm. Neagle just seems great. Yeah. Despite being, in effect, an out gay man since the 50s, Rustin didn't get involved in gay rights activism until the 80s, when he was urged to do so by Neagle, who claims that if he hadn't been in the room when Rustin received the invitations from gay organizers, Rustin likely wouldn't have gotten involved at all. I love <laughs> Neagle. There's some really, really great uh, interviews with Neagle talking about Bayard, because there's not a lot, like... There's not a lot of um, audio recordings of Bayard out there. Yep. But there's a lot of, like, Walter talking about him. I love it. They're adorable. Yeah. We'll have to link those. Yeah. So, yeah. In 1986, Rustin testified on behalf of New York City's gay rights bill, giving the speech called uh, The New N-Word, Our Gays, in which he famously said, Today, blacks are no longer the litmus paper or the barometer of social change. Blacks are in every segment of society, and there are laws that help to protect them from racial discrimination. The new N-word are gays. It has been this sense that gay people are the new barometer for social change. The question of social change should be framed with the most vulnerable group in mind, gay people. So this is this is the quote that many people find uncomfortable. There are mm-hmm. people who find his this stance uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, when he was invited to contribute to the book Life, a black gay anthology, he declined, stating, I was not involved in the struggle for gay rights as a youth. I did not come out of the closet voluntarily. Circumstances forced me out. While I have no problem with being publicly identified as homosexual, it would be dishonest of me to present myself as one who is in the forefront of the struggle for gay rights. I fundamentally consider sexual orientation to be a private matter. As such, it has not been a factor which has greatly influenced my role as an activist. So that's what he had to say about it. Which is so interesting because in later years, like he did an interview with the Village Voice where he actually advocated for every gay person to come out of the closet and that by not coming out, it was doing active danger to the gay community. So it seems Mm -hmm. like he, you know, had some kind of back and forth on that, which makes a lot of sense considering he really had a difficult time Mm -hmm. wrestling with how to talk about his own sexuality because for his right. most of his life it had been relegated to being such a private matter right yeah but he still like during the 80s he was pushing for the NAACP to dedicate time and resources to the AIDS crisis he was at the forefront of making sure that that happened so it wasn't as if he was uninvolved he just had a, I think it was a very complicated circumstances for him given his own life and experiences yeah yeah so this was just one of those really like random facts that you, um, man, the struggles before gay marriage was legal, guys. Yeah. So glad it's legal. So gay marriage wasn't legal at the time. So Neagle and Rustin had to go through a really weird process to make their relationship legal. So in 1982, Rustin um, legally adopted. That's right. He legally adopted Neagle, who was 30 um, mm-hmm. or in his 30s. So at the time, it was the only way to secure legal rights with the same-sex partner was for adoption. Yeah, it was... It was actually something that was pretty common at the time. Um, I mean, and 
up until the last maybe, you know, 10, 20 years, like, was something that people were frequently doing. Because it's, mm-hmm. if you want visitation rights in the hospital, or, uh, you know, any other sort of legal rights, you had the only way to have an actual, like, on-paper connection was through doing, like, adult adoption. So it's real weird, but yep. it's actually a pretty common practice. And really clever, too. Like, what yeah. a clever... <laughs> Props to whoever first came up with that, because that's a really clever workaround. Mm-hmm. So about this, Neagle says, We actually had to go through a process as if Bayard was adopting a small child. My biological mother had to sign a legal paper, a paper disowning me. They had to send a social worker to our home. When the social worker arrived, she had to sit us down to talk to us to make sure that this was a fit home. Which... (laughs) Hoops! So many hoops (laughs) to jump through. My mom has to disown me, and then we have to have a social worker come and assess whether or not I, a fully grown adult, am in a fit home. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. The things we had to go through, people, before before it was Mm -hmm. legal. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of what we what we came with. There's so much more that you can go into. We will link all of our sources. There are so many fantastic books with even more details. Um, and we did not have a word of the week this week, but we do have a uh, fun pop culture tie-in segment. It's short because if we were to list everything that he could be featured in, it would take a very long time. So we will link to a whole bunch of things in our notes. But what we've got are a few. Yeah, there is a there's an independent film called Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin, which um, I haven't seen, but sounds great. Um, would be super interested in listening to. We already mentioned the interviews with Neagle, but Making Gay History Podcast, which we are both fans of, they actually do have an episode on Bayard Rustin where you can listen to some of his later interviews. Like there's the interview that he gave, I think, in 85. There are snippets from that. And in that, which is the one where he told the story about the moment on the bus where, so very early on in our podcast, we talked about that moment on the bus where he realized he wanted to be out as gay and, and that that was important for the civil rights movement that he... Um, that he couldn't just go sit in the back. Mm-hmm. So highly recommend if you want to listen to the very, very few actual words we have from Rustin that you listen to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's one of our sources, but you can actually read all of his mm-hmm. uh, his collected writings in the book Time on Two Crosses, which we will link in our sources. And then I wanted to list this because this is actually the first time that I found out about Bayard Rustin is there was a fantastic uh, a, fa- a fantastic graphic novel called March by John right. Lewis that chronicles his experience growing up in, you know, Jim Crow America and entering into the civil rights movement. And he actually, in it, talks a lot about Bayard Rustin. And it was actually one of the first times that I got a good view of, oh, hey, who is this remarkable gay man behind a lot of these things? Why did I not learn about him when I spent six months doing a module on the civil rights movement in high school? Right? Six months talking about it. It, and not, A single word about Bayard Rustin. I took an entire class in college on the civil rights movement. No one ever really went into Bayard Rustin. Mm -mm. So we're going into it for you, y'all. Yep. He really was, like, pretty systematically erased. Mm -hmm. I mean, from from the discussion of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Because of his, because, like, and this is one of those times where we can actually say it was because of his sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. That it was done for, they had reasons for it, reasons that may not even have been entirely wrong, that they may have actually, you know, like, and that Bayard actually seemed to sympathize with and understand at the time. But it is one of those times where we can actually say he was 
erased from this historical moment because of his sexual orientation. You can say that, like, absolutely, positively, that that is the reason why no one talks about him. Mm -hmm. But we're changing that. Things are changing. There has been a lot recently in refocusing on him as a, a very important part of these efforts. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. I actually first heard about him because um, my partner, like, enjoys listening to, I mean, he's a, Christopher Hitchens has his pros and cons. There are lots of pros and cons <laughs> about Christopher Hitchens. But one thing that Christopher Hitchens was, he, he talked about Bayard Rustin quite a bit. Um, he had a lot of admiration for Bayard Rustin. And I will say that for the years when no one else was really talking about him, Christopher Hitchens was talking about Bayard Rustin and would, you know, kind of go out of his way, even when he talked about King, to talk about the importance of Bayard Rustin and how he's been overlooked and ignored. So, like I said, Christopher Hitchens has, uh, there are a lot of things that I dislike about Christopher Hitchens, but one of the things that I think is valuable to say is that he was someone who was talking about Bayard Rustin, and that was how I first heard about him. So, that brings us to the end and to our our final section Lee, when it comes to Baird Rustin, how gay was he? Gosh, you know, I'm going to say that Bayard Rustin was a good 9 out of 10, huh, let's see, 9 out of 10 school lunches mm. on the gay scale. I would love to go fully 10, but considering his own difficulties and considering his own relationship with his sexuality, I feel like... You know, had he been able to really lean into it and not felt that it was, you know, even though he didn't have shame about it, he did still consider it a burden. It was a, it was yeah. a burden to him and a burden to the movement. And I feel like I, I would have loved for him to be able to be a 10, yes. if that makes sense. That um, does make sense. Yeah. 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 So nine out of 10 uh, segregated school lunches that he <laughs> threw up in the air and said, fuck this. <laughs> I like that addendum. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking along the same, like, very similar lines that, like, I would love, I would love to give him a 10 out of 10. But as you say, like, he had such complicated opinions about his own sexuality and for much of his life. Not that he hid it, but felt like he couldn't fully embrace and kind of live in that part of his, that part of his life. So, yeah, I'll give him a 9 out of 10. <laughs> Parked car threesomes. <laughs> What's the math on that? On that's what? Nine out of ten parked car threesomes. Let's see. So that's what? Like a, like a combined 33? Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, wait. That's 11 times three. Wow. I, I also can't do math because I am a gay. 27. <laughs> 27. Yeah. Don't ever yep. ask us to do math for you folks. No. No. Especially not when like... Apparently, we've reached the end of our recording and both of our brains are, like, having trouble making words go, so... It's gonna be real hard when we talk about Alan Turing. Oh, man. <laughs> With so much science and math. <sighs> this is gonna be good. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's yeah. gonna be awesome. So, so with that, um, before our brains fully break, uh, we're, we're excited to see folks at FemSlash, and, uh, that's, that's it for... Today's episode, Gretchen, where can people find you online on the internets? Well, when I am not discussing badass Bayard, uh, Bayard Rustin, 
I am writing nerdy media analysis and fangirling over Star Wars, Steven Universe, and A Song of Ice and Fire for thefandamentals.com and my personal website, gnellis.com. Or you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter as at gnelliswriter or on YouTube as Baal the Bard. Baal like the Mesopotamian storm god because <laughs> I have a background in Hebrew, so I'm a big old nerd. Um, Lee, what about you? Where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, when I am not hanging out with communist draft dodger homosexuals, I'm usually on Twitter talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux and going to conventions, doing podcasty things, potentially creating a new podcast. We'll see if I can get my butt together with it. Um, but yeah. Uh, exciting things. Yeah. History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast, Twitter at History is Gay Pod, and you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History is Gay Podcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can support us on Patreon, where you can get access to Sappho Salon minisodes. I just recorded several and I'm excited about all of them. The one for this coming month is actually connected to someone that we are talking about while we're going to be at TGI. So, um, that, gonna drop that little hint down there. So, (laughs) (laughs) fun things. So, you get Sappho's Salon, you get sneak peeks, the opportunity to have your voice show up on the show, and a lot more. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website and Join the ranks of our amazing Patreon community. Along with the amazing Bryce Olbert and Linen Luinen. Thank you so much, all of you, for your support. As usual, we couldn't do this without you. You helping us out allows us to have a research budget. It allows us to upgrade our equipment and go to conventions. Mm-hmm. I went to PodCon at the time we're recording this. It's been about two weeks. It was the best time. Uh, I know I said this previously before I had actually gone, but it was so amazing to meet every single one of you. It was really amazing to be up on that panel and talk about queer voices in podcasting. I met so many of you, and you were all so lovely and wonderful, and I can't wait until we can do more of this, and hopefully for the future, me and Gretchen can both come to these things. Yes. With more, with more support, we can make these kind of things happen. We can do more research. We can bring more social media things your way. It just, it greases the wheels for us to being a, for us to be able to make the best show possible and bring it to your ears. So thank you. Yes. You can also buy awesome merch at our History is Gay store. Click on the shop tab on our website and you can get cool things like our Geographic Queers shirt. Uh, we've got mugs and tote bags and hoodies and t-shirts and tank tops. And we've got so many awesome things. We've got some new designs in the pipeline that will yeah, hopefully new- be coming soon. Yeah, new things are in the works. We've partnered with another lovely, wonderful new person who did some really cool art for us, completely unprompted. Y'all, we are loving when you send us cool things that we then come back to you and go, can you, can we, can we put, can we put this on a shirt? Yeah. Can we put this on a shirt? We will also like, with the Patreon money, we will pay you. Artists, send us lovely things because we believe in paying people for their art. Yay. We do. Yeah. And as uh, usual, you can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is one of the things that helps us the most in terms of getting new listeners. It helps us to get 
uh, higher up on charts and allow people to discover our show on their favorite podcatchers, and it allows us to expand this awesome community. And with that, that's it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious. Bye. <laughs>